Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, The Mind of Christ. All right, well, while Paul was on his third missionary journey, he was in the city of Ephesus. He was there ministering uh, to the church there in Ephesus. By the way, Ephesus, located in modern-day Turkey. Back then, it was Asia Minor. there on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. Paul was there for three years enjoying fruitful ministry, but during that happy time, he got some really bad news. The bad news came from a church that he had started about four years previous. The bad news came out of the church of Corinth. And so Paul planted the church of Corinth, if you remember from our introduction, around A.D. 51. He was there for a year and a half. Then he moved on to continue to plant churches. Then around A.D. 55, he's in Ephesus, and that's when he gets the bad news. Hey, Paul, since you left, the, pro the church took a turn for the worse. And now the church of Corinth that you started is filled with problems, and the problems in that church are, but they're not limited to, factions, divisions, lawsuits, that's Christians suing Christians, immoral living, unbiblical divorces, selfishness, the abuse of spiritual gifts, the abuse of the Lord's communion table, and doctrinal error. And so even though the Corinthians were saved, they weren't really growing in the Lord. And the reason why, the primary reason why, is because they had allowed their culture to seep in the worst part of the culture, the sinful part of the culture. They had allowed that to seep in, to permeate, to infiltrate their church, and to negatively influence them. Ladies and gentlemen, everything rises and falls on leadership. And when a church family has weak elders and weak pastors, what happens is that the culture comes in and it permeates into the church and it negatively affects that church and the church begins to go down a path that God never meant it to go down. So after hearing this bad news about the church that he started, Paul decided, I'm going to write a letter and this letter is going to hopefully correct a lot of the errors that I heard about what's going on there in that church. So he writes the letter to fix the problems in the church of Corinth. In chapter one, we saw a couple, three weeks ago, whatever it was, in chapter one, he dealt with the problem of factions, divisions in the church. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. You guys remember all that. Today in chapter two, now here's the overall theme of what we're studying. Today in chapter two, Paul's gonna write about how believers should not trust in human wisdom to bring about spiritual life or change. Now that's a mouthful, I wanna say that again. The overall theme of chapter two, I really want you guys to understand the Bible. I want you to understand this chapter, okay? So here's the overall theme. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, warning them, hey, don't trust in human wisdom to bring about uh, spiritual life or spiritual change or even to determine truth. Human wisdom is not where it is. We're gonna see that now starting in verse one. Paul says, and I, brethren, by the way, he calls these people his brethren because even though they had all these problems, even though they were sinners, they were still saved. And I'm sure today this room is filled with a lot of saved sinners, amen? Right, and so, and I, brethren, when I came to you, right, back in AD 51, I planted the church, okay? I did not come with, here it is, excellence of speech or of wisdom. The idea there in the context is human wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. And so what Paul is doing here is he's setting himself apart from the culture, he says, when I came to you, I didn't come with excellency of speech. When I came to you, I didn't come to you with all this human 
wisdom. The reason Paul says that is because the culture was totally different than the way Paul would plant and start a church and help Christians grow in their relationship with the Lord. The culture, the ancient Greeks, exalted the human intellect. You ever met somebody who was too smart for their own good? You ever met somebody with a really big head, thought he was all that? Maybe spoke with a fake English accent to try to impress you or whatever? So the ancient Greeks exalted the human intellect. They relied on man's philosophy, man's musings in order to determine truth. The ancient Greeks believed that truth, the meaning of life, how to do life, the meaning of the universe, the eternity, that all of that could be obtained through man's wisdom. So what did they do? The ancient Greeks, the culture of that day, they would spend countless hours in philosophical debates. In Athens, it was down at the marketplace. It was up at Mars Hill. In Corinth, I'm sure it was in different places of the city. So the believers in the church of Corinth, the culture that surrounded them was a bunch of philosophers where man was the center of their message and it was all about human wisdom. It was all about clever arguments. It was all about eloquent speech. It was all about these theatrics in order to move or sway a crowd. And Paul said, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with any of that because I understand that none of that can help anybody receive spiritual life and none of that can help you grow in your relationship with the Lord. So that leads you to your first point. The church doesn't need human wisdom. (laughs) Clever arguments, eloquent speech, or the use of theatrics to sway a crowd. Some of you are still writing. That's good, I'm glad you're taking notes. So important to get some application from the message that you can take home and think about and live out. And also understand if you ever move away and you find yourself in a city and you're looking for a church, what the true church of the New Testament is all about. The church doesn't need human wisdom, clever arguments, eloquent speech, or the use of theatrics to sway a crowd. All right, some preachers use the arm of the flesh in their Sunday morning messages. Some preachers have this this ability to hold an audience in the palm of their hand. And they can move that audience to experience a whole host of different emotions. They have this this ability to cause the, the crowd to get really happy or to get really angry or to get really sad or even uh, they can whip up a crowd into some kind of hysteria. I have witnessed some preachers that have led their audience to do the stupidest things you've ever seen in your entire life. And a man's ability, you gotta get this, a man's ability to move a crowd is not necessarily a sign that he is from God. And that was so good, I'm gonna say it again. A man or a woman preacher, whatever. Their ability to sway a crowd, their ability to move a crowd emotionally, intellectually, whatever, that ability does not mean that they are necessarily speaking for God. Hitler (laughs) moved crowds to great heights of emotion. And after his, these nearly hypnotic speeches that he would give, right, the crowd would be whipped up into a frenzy. Zeke Heil, Zeke Heil. Was Hitler a man of God? So Paul said, hey, when I came to you, in verse one, I didn't come with excellence of speech. I didn't come with human wisdom. Okay, Paul, so what did you do? The answer is hidden kind of in the end of verse one. Look at it. Declaring to you the what? The testimony of God. There it is. That's where it's at. That's what the church should all be about. Paul didn't come with excellency of speech, human wisdom. What did he do? He just came declaring the word of God, the testimony of God. By the way, where can the testimony of God be found? Can it be found in human wisdom? No, 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 no. 
We like to think that because we like to exalt ourselves and exalt our intellect and think we're all that. But the testimony of God has nothing to do, does not come from fallen man at all. The testimony of God is right here. This is the testimony of God. And I was so excited as I'm studying this week for this message and working my way through chapter two, when I went back and I saw in Acts 18 what Paul actually did for the year and a half that he was with the church of Corinth. You say, what did he do? It's right there. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's huge. So I want you guys to say that verse like you mean it. You ready for this? On the count of three, whether you had coffee this morning or not. Ready? One, two, three. And he... So what did Paul do, church family? And that's your next point. The church simply needs the faithful teaching of the word. It's not what everybody really likes in our culture. And it's not what everybody really liked in the first century, Greek culture either. Again, what did the elders and pastors of the church of Corinth do? They allowed the culture to permeate, infiltrate, seep into the church. And it negatively affected the church, okay? So what was the culture of that day? It was all about human wisdom. It was all about eloquent speech. It was all about clever arguments. It was all about theatrics to sway a crowd. That's the way these philosophers down in the marketplace, up on the Acropolis, over there, wherever, that's the way that they would communicate their fallen ideas about the meaning of life, truth, the meaning of the universe, or whatever. And Paul said, that is not where it's at. This is where it's at, right here. And no doubt, many of the believers in the church of Corinth because they were carnal, they wanted all that stuff they saw in their culture. The clever arguments, the eloquent speech, et cetera, et cetera. But listen to this. Paul didn't care what they wanted. He gave them what they needed. And that's the word of God. I'm alarmed. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. I am so alarmed that more and more pastors in America, in the evangelical church, are leaving the teaching of the word of God for self-help messages. So every Sunday, it's another superficial, shallow message that makes people feel good. And you know who's the center of all their messages? Man. And people leave the church thinking, I feel so good about myself. I feel like I'm the center of the universe. And God's primary, the primary reason that God exists is to bless me. It's all about my health. It's all about my wealth. It's all about my prosperity. It's all about how I can win at life. I'm the center. That's what's happening today more and more in evangelical churches. We've left the teaching of the word of God because they say, they'll say it in seminary, they'll say it in church growth conferences or whatever, you can't teach the word of God anymore because the crowd just won't show up. Well, here's a newsflash. I am not here primarily to give you guys good advice. I am here to give you good news. Good news. Not good advice. Good news, the revelation of God, not human wisdom, not what I can think up in my brilliance. If you believe that I'm brilliant, I'll, I've got some uh, waterfront property for you, oceanfront property in Montana, if you believe that I'm brilliant. Okay, I'm not brilliant, I realize that. So I just stick to the word of God. What did Jesus tell Pastor Peter? I said it in my opening prayer. In John 21, the resurrected Christ, Peter, feed my sheep. He said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Okay, so what are we supposed to do? Set up a big breakfast aisle in the foyer every more Sunday morning so you guys can eat? No. What are we, to, what are we supposed to feed the flock of God? The word of God. Now, that made a profound impact on Pastor Peter. 
And the reason I know that is because later on, many years later, when he wrote his epistle to the church community, he said in 1 Peter 2.2, to the the believers, he said, and I quote, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Human wisdom can't give anybody spiritual life. Human wisdom cannot give anybody spiritual growth. Good advice, though it may be good advice, you can get good advice on the bookshelves of Barnes and Noble. It's not what Sunday morning is supposed to be about. Pastors will put you know, a few verses on the screen, usually taken out of context, to support whatever they have come up with, and they'll call that teaching the word. And it's not. And the result of it is you've got a bunch of weak, anemic, impotent Christians, and the first time a trial hits, they're gone. They're disillusioned. Where's God? Well, guess what? God does not primarily exist to bless you. You primarily exist to serve him, a sovereign God. It's about him, ladies and gentlemen. It's not about us. And so that's why he says in verse two, for I determined not to know anything among you except, you guys help me out with the rest of the verse. Go ahead. That's what it's all about right there. I determined to know nothing from you except Jesus and him crucified. Now, that wasn't, quick side note, his only message. We know he was there in Corinth for a year and a half teaching the word of God. He instructed the Ephesian elders to teach people the whole counsel of God. So Christ crucified wasn't his, his only message, but it was his central message. And it's got to be our central message too. That leads you to your next point. Our central message is Christ crucified. If you ever leave the Treasure Coast and move to whatever city, make sure that whatever church you visit and are thinking about calling that your church home, make sure that's their central message. Make sure they're teaching through the word of God. It's the only way we can receive spiritual life and spiritual growth and real truth from the Lord. So here at Calvary, and by the way, I love our church's name, Calvary, because it's all about that. Now, are we a Calvary Chapel? Yes, we are are and always will be uh, affiliated with the Calvary Chapel movement of churches, over 1,500 all around the world. But guess what? Calvary is more important than Calvary Chapel. Why? Because Calvary is Christ crucified. It's not about affiliation of churches. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so at Calvary Port St. Lucie, what is our central message? Our central message is simply this, that God became man. (laughs) The eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, wrapped himself in human flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. During that perfect life, what did he do? He was constantly living in a way to give us an example of how we should be living, not with ourselves in mind, but with others in mind. He's always giving, always serving, always healing. He lives a life that is perfectly pleasing to his father, and then he went to a Roman cross. Why? God went to a Roman cross to pay for our sins. He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was that offering. In other words, he was executed so that you would not have to be executed. He died for your sins so you don't have to die spiritually forever in a place called hell, later on given into the lake of fire. This is heavy, heavy stuff, but Jesus paid it all. When he was all done laboring, the father looked down, Isaiah 53, at the labor of his soul and God was satisfied, propitiation, the God's, holy nature against our sin. He hates all sin. He says, you know what? I see the labor of my son's soul. Sin is paid for. And Jesus said, paid in full. And when you enter a relationship with Christ, you put your faith in Christ, all your sin, past, present, future, is washed away by the blood of the lamb. That's our central message. Jesus Christ, him crucified. The third day he rose again. Now check out what Paul said. In Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us 
in that while we were still sinners, okay, any sinners in the house? All of us. While we were still sinners, deserving of death, right? Just help me out with the next four words. Go ahead. Christ died for us. There's the central message. Much more than having now been justified by his what? I thought you had to be real good and work your way. No, we're not justified by works. We're justified, declared righteous by God, by Jesus' blood. And what's the result? The last sentence, we shall be what? Saved. From what? God's wrath. This is our only message. This is our central message. Why? Because there's no other way to be saved from God's wrath. Well, I don't believe a loving God would send anybody to hell. No, but a loving God will allow you to send yourself to hell if you reject his incredible offering that he gave his entire life on a cross, bearing our guilt, bearing our sin, bearing our shame, so that we can live forever. If we say thanks but no thanks, we deserve to go to hell and pay for our own sins. Some people will say, I can't believe that pastor's saying the H word. Welcome to a church that teaches the Bible. So our central message is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Look at verse 3 now. He said, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Okay, again, that's just the opposite of the Greek culture, that exalted man, the intellect of man, you know, the, the strength and, and cockiness. Paul says, I wasn't like that at all. In fact, when I went to Berea, they threw me out. When I went to Thessalonica, they threw me out. When I went to Athens, they laughed at me. So I'm thinking, what are they going to do in Corinth? So I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. In fact, Jesus had to appear to Paul in a dream and, said, and say, don't be afraid, Paul. Why? Because Paul was afraid. He says in verse 4, in my speech and my preaching, here it is, was not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, and that's what's sad, a lot of churches, exactly where people's faith is, it's all about the wisdom of men. But he says, your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In the context, what's he saying? He's saying, Corinthian church, you've allowed the culture to permeate your church, to seep in, to negatively affect you. You're all about persuasive words because you see it in the marketplace when the philosophers debate each other. You're all about human wisdom. But my speech and my preaching were not with those things. Now, quick side note, for all of you who have aspirations to be a pastor or maybe you are a pastor or an elder, maybe you're in Bible school. When Paul said that my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, he was not giving preachers a license to preach poorly. He was not giving preachers a license to not study and just kind of wing it on Sunday morning. The reason I know that is because he told the young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved in the God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I'm here to say that it takes hours and hours and hours of study and hard work and diligence to rightly divide the word of truth. And by the way, would you please pray for me? Do you realize the responsibility that I have? I've got to stand before the living God someday. And the Bible says, James says, that I'm going to be held to a stricter judgment because I'm teaching you the word of God. Now, if it weren't for the Spirit of God, I'd be sweating bullets. <laughs> but I know as a people of God pray and I, I, I allow the Holy Spirit to, to lead during my study that he helps me, and I reference, by the way, good, godly, solid men, that he helps me to rightly divide the word of truth. 
but you guys need to be Bereans and check me out. And so what was Paul saying in verse four? Let's look at it again. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, here it is, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And so he was emphasizing here in verse four, the preacher, the pastor, the evangelist, whatever, their need to rely on the Holy Spirit for the teaching of the word of God. Here's your next point. Preaching that is anointed by the Holy Spirit produces believers whose faith is strong. Human wisdom won't do that. Feel-good messages won't do that. Superficial uh, messages won't do that. But Bible preaching, teaching that it's anointed by the Holy Spirit produces people whose faith is strong. You say, how do you know? Because it says it right there in verse five, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When your faith, as a result of biblical teaching and preaching and your own studying the Bible at home, that is anointed, it produces a strong faith. By the way, then when the winds and the waves and the, and the, the storms of life and the trials come, you're able to stand strong on the rock of Jesus and his word. And so, why is it important that pastors and preachers and teachers, why is it important that we take Paul's words to heart? We don't rely on human wisdom, persuasive words, but we rely on the Holy Spirit of God. Why is that important? It's important because, listen to this. If you're with me, can you say amen? amen. Here's why it's important. Because the Holy Spirit can do more in 20 seconds than any man can do in 20 years. I can present to you 20 years worth of sermons based on human wisdom, good advice, what I come up with in my own brain. And no one will ever receive spiritual life and no one will ever grow spiritually. You may get some truth here and there. But if I humble myself and I rely on the Holy Spirit's power through prayer, then in 20 seconds of preaching, or less than that, let's say two seconds of preaching, the Holy Spirit can move about this room, and if there's a lost person, that all of a sudden, man, the effectual call is going on, the wooing, the drawing of the Holy Spirit, that guy sees his need to be saved, he puts his faith in Christ, bam, born again, right there in the pew on Sunday morning during a service. Someone's struggling, they need a word from the Lord. As I'm preaching, I'm not even talking about it. All of a sudden, the Spirit takes something that I say right to your heart, bam, wow, set free. And so it's preaching, it's teaching in the demonstration of power in the Holy Spirit. And so if there's any power that's going on on Sunday morning from me, or from any of the other pastors that come and speak, if there's any power going on, it's not because we're so great, it's because your prayers are so great. It's so important. That's why I wanna stop for a second and say thank you, thank you, thank you to every one of you who pray daily for this church and for the leadership of this church, the pastors, the elders. It means the world to us. Why? Because your prayers are the gas that moves the vehicle of this church forward. It's the oil that, that brightens the light of this church. It's your prayers. So I'm so thankful for Eileen and Corey and what they do every Wednesday night and all, everybody, 30, 40, 50 people that come on Wednesday night and they're, they're praying, pouring out their hearts for this church and for the pastors and elders and the leaders and the staff and the missionaries and the church plants, right? right? Their prayers are, are being heard by the Holy Spirit and then he comes and he moves, he empowers, he saves, he instructs. So it's not about man, it's about Christ. I was reminded about that as I read this illustration this week. In a certain church, there was a big stained glass window um, with Christ hanging from the cross on the stained glass window. It was beautiful, it was magnificent. And it was located center stage right behind the pulpit. The problem was every Sunday morning during the sermon, you couldn't see the stained glass window because the senior pastor was a big, tall, strong, big guy. Well, one day there was a guest speaker and the guest speaker was much smaller than the regular pastor. 
And on that day, you could actually see the stained glass window. And so there's a little girl and she kind of tugged on her, mom, her mom's arm and she said, mommy, where's the regular guy who stands up there and blocks Jesus? You see, pastors can get in the way of Jesus, not because they have big bodies, but because they have big heads. And they think it's all about them and their human wisdom and their clever arguments and their eloquent speech, their theatrics or whatever. It has nothing to do with any of that. Our preaching, our teaching has to be with humility, um, oiled with the prayers of God's people. And then you see the Lord show up. Man, when a pastor is small in his own eyes, Christ can be seen. Look at verse six. However... Because some people will say, well, Paul, you're, you're not wise at all. Okay, if you're not coming with human wisdom or eloquent speech or whatever, high-sounding rhetoric, then, then you're just dumb. Uh, wait a minute, verse six. However, we speak wisdom among those who are, what's the word? All right, circle it, please. That should be one of your goals in life. Spiritual maturity. We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So you got religious rulers, you got political rulers of the day of Christ. They came to nothing. Verse seven, but we speak the wisdom of God in a what? Mystery, come back to that in a second. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. God's a sovereign God. He doesn't, you know, react as we act. No, he acted before time began. The gospel is older than our earth. Verse eight, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the, help me out with the last three words. That's a strong divine title for Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of glory. So he says in verse seven that we speak wisdom of God in a mystery. Okay, so question. You don't have to answer out loud. But what was the mystery that God foreordained before the creation of the world? What was the mystery that the rulers, political and um, um, uh, religious, what, what was the, the wisdom, the mystery that they missed, totally missed? Well, if you're taking notes, here it is. The mystery that the rulers missed was that Jesus was the Christ, the incarnate God who came to redeem mankind. That's the mystery. They all missed it. And by the way, that's an important point because that's what separates true Christians from the cults. Right there. That's what separates true Christianity from all other world religions. And some people say, they accuse me, you're so intolerant because you say Islam is not the way to God or Buddhism is not the way of God or Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses or whatever. I believe that all, they would say, all roads lead to heaven. No, only one road leads to heaven. It's right there. Did Buddha die for you? Was Muhammad killed for you? No, he killed a bunch of people, but he wasn't killed for you. Jesus came to serve and to love. He didn't come with the sword. And then he hung on a cross and paid for your sins, rose again the third day to authenticate everything that he ever said or did. And so he is the only way. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's not me, that's Jesus talking. So the mystery the rulers missed, right? Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, was that Jesus was really the Messiah, the incarnate God who came to redeem mankind. Now if Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers, if they would have known that Jesus was really the Christ, they wouldn't have crucified him. But guess what? There's no excuse. Why? Because he told them. Caiaphas says, are you the son of God, the Christ, the son of God? And Jesus said, I am. <laughs> and you shall see the son of man 
sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Right then, they should have hit their knees. But what did they do instead? They hit him. They blindfolded him. They spit on him. They punched him. And by the way, someday it might come to the fact that when we preach boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ, we might get punched. We might get spat on. Are you going to run away? (laughs) Or are you going to stand there? Jesus stood there. And Caiaphas rejected the, the, the religious leader of the day, rejected Jesus' claims to be the incarnate God. Not only the religious rulers, Pilate, the political ruler, he knew something was special about Jesus, right? But because he was a coward, he went, around, he, he went with the crowd. The crowd said, crucify him. So Pilate washed his hands. By the way, that didn't cleanse him of any innocence at all. And nothing's changed today. Ladies and gentlemen, most of the religious and most of the political rulers in our world today don't have a clue about who Jesus really was and is. And most of them that have heard that he is God in the flesh have rejected that message. Well, what is going to happen to them? The end of verse 6 tells us what's going to happen to every ruler who does not bow the knee to Christ. They will come to nothing. Every politician in our day, in the United States of America, who does not bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ will, in the end, come to nothing. Every religious leader, I don't care what title their religion is, if they do not bow their knee to the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, they will, end of verse six, come to nothing. Why? Because Daniel prophesied that one day there will be a stone cut without hands coming out. And what will that stone do? It will crush the political structure of the day, the revised Roman Empire, if you will, the 10 nation federation that's coming to a theater near you. One day, the world will be ruled by a great dynamic speaker who does have clever arguments, who has human wisdom, incredible charismatic figure. And he will lead a 10 nation coalition. And guess what's gonna happen? Jesus is not some wimp up in heaven, ruling over the earth somehow in an ethereal realm. No, he's coming back literally in his resurrected body and he will crush anyone who does not bow their knee to him as Lord. He's coming back. And yes, he will use might, but then he will bring an eternal peace. Because right now this planet is in rebellion against the God who created it. And one day, God will open the seals, he will blow the trumpets, he will pour out the bowls of wrath, and he will come back and take back what is his. And you're either on board or you're not. And like I said, it's coming to a theater near you. I don't like the movie. It's coming anyway. Look at verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Oh, isn't that great, Pastor Mike? Heaven's going to be so wonderful, we have no clue how awesome it's going to be. That's one of the most mistranslated verses in the whole Bible right there. That's another example of how people take a verse out of context to teach whatever they want to teach. It has nothing to do with us not knowing about heaven. In the context, it is, let's start over again, the unsaved eye has not seen, nor the unsaved man's ear has not heard, neither has entered into the unsaved woman's heart or man's heart, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, what's the first word in verse 10? But... God has revealed them to who? Us. That's believers. That's you and I. Through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So he's talking there about how human wisdom and clever arguments, all of that, can never, ever, ever understand the things that God has prepared for those who love him, but believers who have the Holy Spirit living inside, we know God's revealed that to us, verse 10. 
Verse 11, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Right? Right now I can't read your thoughts. You can't read my thoughts. But your spirit knows exactly what you're thinking and my spirit knows exactly what I'm thinking. Well, the rest of verse 11, even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. The spirit knows exactly what the father is thinking. Verse 12, now we have received, now here it is again. He keeps banging this over and over. Not the spirit of the world. Human wisdom, clever arguments, eloquent speech, exalting the human intellect, none of that. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. If you're taking notes, here's your next point. The spirit in us reveals to us the things God has freely given to us. How many of you guys are really happy for the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you? I am so happy for him. I'm so happy for him because what does he do? As we open the word of God, he reveals those things that God has freely given to us. And we don't have time, but I was going to take you to Romans 8. Um, so I'm just going to give you the verses, okay? Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 32. Romans 8, verses 28 through 32. That'll give you a little bit of the things that God has freely given to you. He's foreknown you, predestined you, called you, justified you. He will glorify you. It's all freely given in Christ. He has, if you know Christ, he has saved you from the penalty of sin. He is saving you from the power of sin. He will one day save you from the very presence of sin. He didn't just come to die for you, by the way. He didn't come to just redeem you. This is a covenantal community thing, and it's a, cause, it's a whole universe thing, okay? So he's going to come back, and he's going to redeem not just individuals, but the whole world. This world that we're standing on right now will be redeemed, resurrected into a new earth. The cosmos will be redeemed, resurrected into a new heavens, and one day you and I will stand in our new bodies in the new Jerusalem located on the new earth, and we'll look up to the new heavens, and we'll hear Jesus say, behold, I make all things new. Rule with me. Live with me. Enjoy me forever for my glory. It's coming. It's coming here. We should live our lives as if it's coming. And you might say, well, oh man, that's 50 years away. It's going to go like that. I have a daughter that's going to be married very soon. My second daughter out of three is being married. And I'm thinking, I keep thinking for the last two weeks, I just keep picturing her as a six-year-old. I'm like, what, what just happened? It went like that. But human, people who, who center on human wisdom and messages that make you feel good and think it's all about you, it's all about this life. It's so appealing to our flesh. This life is a vapor. You're here today, you're gone tomorrow. Ask Horace Wallace, our beloved elder who's with the Lord right now. If he were here in the flesh, he would tell you, live for God. It's real. I'm looking at it right now. Live for the Lord. Look at our last verses, starting in verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which, what? Here he goes again. You think he's made his point? Not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, that's the unsaved man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is, okay, circle that, that should be one of your goals in life. Mature, spiritual. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Um, we have the mind of Christ. Now, I love verse 14. Look at it again. But the unsaved or natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Some people may listen or hear this message, and they may not understand a word that I'm saying. And they may even say, this is just foolishness. Well, there's a reason. 
It's because you're natural. (laughs) Nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Question, why can't the natural man, the unsaved man, know the things of the Spirit of God? Answer, he's dead. (laughs) We say it again. If you guys are with me, say amen here, okay? Why can't the unsaved natural man or woman perceive the things of the Spirit of God? Answer, he's dead. Ladies and gentlemen, if I brought a corpse onto this platform in a casket, opened the casket up and said, hey man, are you cold? Do you need a blanket? What would he say to me? Nothing. He can't perceive anything in the material world. If I were to say, prop them up, look at all these people. Aren't they great? What would he say? Nothing, he's dead. If I were to begin to tickle him, are you ticklish today? Right, and if he started to laugh, you'd all scream and run to your cars, right? Can you imagine? No. How's he gonna respond? He is not gonna respond, he's dead. All right, Ephesians 2.1 says that you and I We're dead in our trespasses and sins. So just like someone who is physically dead can't perceive anything in the material world, so people who are spiritually dead can't perceive anything in the spiritual world. Spiritual things make no sense to them. The things of the Spirit of God make no sense to them. So what is needed? God's intervention. You didn't wake up someday, as I said before, and go looking for Jesus. You didn't care less about Jesus. He came looking for you because he loves you. When the Holy Spirit does that effectual call, Romans chapter eight, and that person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the spirit of God comes in, the new birth takes place, and now all of a sudden, that person can perceive spiritual things. And if he grows, if she grows, they can even develop the mind of Christ. That's what it says at the very end of your chapter. Here is your last point as the worship team comes up. You guys stay with me here. I'm going to finish this because this is really important. Paul says you can have the mind of Christ. He said we have the mind of Christ. But I know, studying through the New Testament, that the mind of Christ is developed. We have it, but it has to be developed. How do we develop it? We can develop the mind of Christ when we humbly meditate on his word. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the mind of Christ. Right here. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus shows up at this home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. You guys remember this story? Knocks on the door. Martha freaks out. (laughs) Martha goes into fifth gear. She's running around in circles. She's panicking. She's worrying. She's making a meal for Jesus and we assume his disciples. She gets rebuked. You know why? She was too busy to spend time with the Lord. Mary, her sister, made a different choice, the right choice. Look at Mary's choice. Mary sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Martha freaking out, running around in circles, all stressed out, too busy to sit at Jesus' feet. Martha gets rebuked by the Lord. Mary gets blessed. Somebody looks at that verse and they say, wow, can you imagine how awesome it must have been for Mary to sit at Jesus' feet and hear his word? Can you imagine what she experienced? Yeah, I can't imagine it. You know why? Because me and hundreds of others of you, we experience it every morning. Every time a believer sits down and opens this book, they experience what Mary experienced. Now, we don't see the Lord, but we receive his word. We sense his presence. When I was in the mountains last week celebrating our youngest daughter's uh, graduation, I don't know what it is about going up there. I just, man, my devotion time were so rich. God's presence was so awesome. I think it's a lot of you guys praying. It's certainly not because I'm something spiritual, you know, some great whatever man. None, none, of, none of that at all. It's because God's just so gracious. 
but you got to take time to get away from everybody and be with him. So will you be too busy to spend time with the Lord? Will you be like Martha? Or will you choose every day to make Jesus the priority of your life and get up early in the morning or stay up late at night, whatever, if you're a morning person or night person, will you sit at his feet and be with him? Some of you have not yet got onto a systematic Bible reading plan. You gotta go to blueletterbible.org. You can download the one-year plan or the two-year plan. I always choose two because I'm a slow reader and I like to think about it. But get on a reading plan. Spend time with the Lord every day. Make that the favorite time of your day, sitting at his feet. And what, what will the Lord do? He will eventually more and more and more give you the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.